When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everyone. We are back, and this is episode 167, Consulting, Heuristics, and Engineering with Joao Rosa. I'm Matt, that's Mike, and this week we'll be talking to Joao about all things consulting, (laughs) heuristics, and engineering. It's a really packed episode, so I don't really want to get too much into it other than just repeating the title, I guess. So if if this sounds interesting to you, because hopefully it does, and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a reviewer rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And now a bit of a more formal introduction, if you will. Joao is a principal consultant at a company called Zebia, that's X-E-B-I-A. As a part of his consultancy practice, he fulfills interim positions such as CTO and also advises on strategic technology implementation. He has worked as a coordinator, CTO, software engineer, software architect, and technical team lead across different industries. He has also done numerous talks on topics such as domain-driven design, DevOps, property-based testing, and many more. Then to top it all off, he is also a podcast host of his own show, The Software Crafts Podcast, where he interviews guests on each episode, challenging them with a va- with a variety of heuristics and other design problems. Let's just jump right to the call right now. Loaded episode. Let's go. All right, everyone, we have Joao on the line. Hopefully I said that correctly here. And before we jump into this packed episode, how's it going? What's up? What have you been working on? Hi, uh, everything is good. And uh, first of all, thanks uh, for the invite to be on the show. Of course. Um, what I'm working on. So I'm between assignments, actually. So uh, now I'm traveling around the world without leaving the Netherlands, but I'm uh, working with uh, several companies across different time zones uh, across the world. So uh, it's uh, fun, uh, lots of uh, different conversations. So keep my brain busy absolutely and i know that uh, you and i had a, had a a call or two before we uh we did this and so i kind of just want to jump right into this because you're saying between assignments and i never actually heard of this of the uh the particular job that you do so you're a you're a cto for hire and you know i kind of want to ask about this because i i always thought that you know a cto would always be such a high up position in a company that it would be solely based on say experience or seniority or however the company does it does it so when you talk about those assignments or specifically the CTO for hire stuff, you know, can you describe what it's like to jump into a CTO position on just an interim basis? Is the interview process any different? And how do you even find such opportunities? Yeah, yeah. So it's a very interesting uh, uh, question. Even myself, uh, in total honesty, doubt about it until with my consultancy practice, start to spot uh, a a space in the market for it, right? Uh, But to address your question, and also we discussed this enough the first time that we talk, the interview process 
I think that is different because I was never in an interview process for a CTO in a permanent position, but I saw some of those. And it's based on trust, right? Usually, because I already have a relationship with the customer, we already work together and they have a need, right? And when we talk about these needs, I usually work with scale-ups, right? With companies that in total have between uh, 200 to 500 people and they are facing organizational challenge, right? And uh, what I figured out is that companies with this size uh, usually receive two types of answers in terms of uh, people applying for CTO. You have people that, you know, uh, have the willing and the skills, but don't have the experience. Or you have the people with the experience, but usually they turn down the, 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 the role because the company is too small. Well, I like challenges when organizations are changing and be part of that change. And I find particularly interesting that part, or especially the by that part when a company is on that phase of their life cycle, because they shown that they have a good product, is not just a scale-up, but they also are not an enterprise with lots of processes and different business lines. So it's it's really an interesting size to have an interesting impact. And my day-to-day, it's, it's, it's normal. Uh, I will say as a CTO, all, all of challenges that you can imagine of a company growing, right? Uh, procurement challenge, uh, HR challenge, uh, recruitment, uh, products and technology challenges, right? Because also uh, the landscape is always changing. So that is just the, the, the bread and butter of a, a position like that. Can you actually explain what, what you... a scaler is? Sorry, I didn't understand the question. Can you explain what a scaler is? I think you said uh, the, like you you enter companies. Scale up. Scale up. Okay, I see. Yeah, Can sorry. you explain yeah. what that is? Yeah, so scale ups, uh, in my opinion, are companies that uh, uh, have between 180 to 500 employees, usually around that. Uh, 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 and they are they are scaling. They prove that their uh, product works. Uh, and by the way, I work with, uh, typically I work with digital companies, right? They have a product, but product is digital. Um, they prove that the product works and now they are scaling in two dimensions, or they are going with a product to more markets and by more markets, different geographies, right? So they, they are in one or two countries and now they go to, they have the ambition to go to six or seven, uh, you know, cross oceans, this type of things. The other dimension of scale-ups is they have a product and they want to build a second product line, right? So all those two dimensions bring all sorts of challenges uh, within a, a scale-up. And that's why I call them scale-ups. And they are very, very interesting, in my opinion. Do you find any challenges working with... So obviously you said the work is challenging, but do you find any challenges with um, sort of... I guess you would even call it almost like the small business effect sometimes where it's hard to sort of get... Uh, your value per dollar. So you would think, you know, with a smaller company that's scaling up that they would try to say, you know, hey, normally a CTO would get paid. I'm just throwing in a random number, $150 an hour. We want to pay you 75. Is that okay? Like, do you find it also a challenge to get 
like a fair rate there? Not 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 that you have to like dig into your finances or anything, but is it hard to get a fair a fair rate from from some something like a scale up at that scale? Uh, I will say no. When they are startups, yes, uh, there are these type of conversations. Uh, scale ups, uh, no, because usually they start to have money, and they know uh, they know what it costs uh, uh, to to or improve the quality or improve the the, the you know the speed and uh, what uh, you know experience can bring. So with and that's also why my my target group uh, is these type of companies. Uh, also because of these reasons, right? Often uh, uh, startups have good ideas and those products uh, might be uh, uh, um, a huge success in the future. However, you know, they have or financial constraints or even, you know, uh, market constraints, all of these type of stuff, which um, I'm not, I'm not an entrepreneur. Uh, I understand entrepreneurship, but is not my thing. Right. That seems to be that seems to be the uh, that like the new thing too. Also, like there's there seems to be like sort of a a, a or a surgence, I suppose, of entrepreneurs uh, nowadays. But you rarely see, or at least I rarely see. Normally, the entrepreneurs we see are like sort of the at influencer level, where they're individuals on you know TikTok making a product, or they're selling a course, or they're doing something like that. Small teams, one two people, one person, whatever. Just like just like Mike and I, I guess. Uh, so it's interesting to hear sort of the uh the interim if you will between the small company stuck at how you're comparing the startups between the scale-ups and then the big companies so it's interesting to sort of see that contrast and how that how that goes uh we can dive right into the next question here so you know you've uh you've worked in in more technical positions of the industry so for example you in your resume there you had a software engineer and you've also worked in the more, let's say, human ones, if you will, like a consultant and a coordinator. So out of those two sort of high-level areas, if you will, which do you prefer? Do you think that everyone on the tech side should try out different positions to gain more experience? So, for example, if somebody is a web developer now and they're just getting started, should they be trying to do a little bit of tech lead stuff or team lead stuff or coordinator stuff? What do you think? Well, I... So to the, the first part of the question, I love to be in the middle. So I love technology, but I also love the, the social part. So I'm a, a student of the famous social technical systems. In terms of the second part of the question, if, if a web developer should try that, I wouldn't say that that person should do that, right? Mm-hmm. However... I will say that the, the social dimension, the way that we interact when we aren't in a team, it's really important to have those skills or, or to groom those skills, right? Because the, 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 the way that people perceive, you know, web developers, developers in general, engineers, in ge- software engineers in general, mm-hmm. is that we are this type of people with a hoodie on a, a basement doing some stuff. Actually, Software development is, you know, uh, uh, almost a social activity, right? We work in teams. We work with our customers. We work with different people in the company that have different roles. And we need to talk. We need to communicate. And I have the feeling 
that sometimes we forgot about that, all right? So I will not necessarily say that it's good for people to try, right? And if you have the ambition to be a team lead, tech lead, engineering manager, go for it. It's beautiful to, to help people in their careers. Um, but I will not necessarily say that people just should try, but I will say that we should value the communication to produce better software, to have better products in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, you, even in something as simple as what Mike and I do, which is run a, a, web dev, a, web, a small web dev agency, there will be times in which you'll be, you know, let's say you're working on a project for a long time. So you're, you're basically full-time technician at that point. And then you're just like, man, like, why does the customer want this little like thing change? Like, why is that? Why is that? And that kind of brings in the human element, right? Where, you know, in a small business like us, we have to wear multiple hats. And so we have to to have to see that. But when you're, when you're so drilled in on the technical side, it's easy to overlook the fact that it's like, Hey, you know, to us, it's a real pain to make that button blue or whatever. When something happens, you have to read all this stuff and do all this stuff to confirm and then make it blue. But to the customer, to them, they're just like, Hey man, like, can you just change the color? And maybe it's actually a bigger, a big part of whatever their vision is or whatever that they're trying to go with. And so the human element absolutely can be complex and, you know, like you said, not for everyone, but it's certainly very, very valuable, uh, especially when communicating to someone who is not technical about a technical topic. Definitely. I totally agree with you. I, and, and that is the thing, that the value of communication is this constant negotiation between two parties, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because one of my biggest learnings, so early in my career, I saw software as a st static thing. Oh, you ask these or you want these, let's build these, and that's it. But software, and uh, as I learned earlier in my career, have this interesting property that it can change in production, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if I buy a car, uh, you know, I can change the car, but then it's not safe and it's very expensive to change a car after it's out of the, 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 the manufacturing line. But software has this interesting property that change. And also people find new users to the software that we put in production, which also it's an interesting one. And then I realized that actually the value is this communication, negotiate, see what, uh, what is really important. And uh, in your example, the, the blue button because of, of the strategy. Okay, understanding these can be complicated to implement, we can change some things, but it's possible, right? Uh, uh, and do that. So I find that this is my biggest learning, actually, so far in the uh, my career as software engineer. Mm -hmm. now, j just to jump in here a little bit, uh, and to build on this question that was asked, what do you think is the minimum requirement for a developer to in terms of like leadership skills, mentoring skills, uh, communication skills? Because I know you said that not every developer needs to be a leader, and I 100% agree with that. I think that that is a misconception a lot of the times that people kind of think that they always need to move up the leadership ladder, but there is a different kind of ladder to move up, like a seniority ladder uh, in terms of, you know, intermediate senior level developer. So, But I always kind of push back a little bit where I say like you can't just close yourself off from communication, like you have to be able to take on like a junior employee and at least bring them up to speed. And that is part of leadership a little bit. So is there a minimum requirement, would you say? 
Um, so if we talk about the, the seniority in your role, right? So I'm taking the, the junior until, you know, distinguished engineer, all of those levels. I will say that from senior onwards, you need to be able to coach, right? Because for me, uh, a senior in the senior engineer, you know, staff uh, and principal and so forth, needs to master this communication, needs to understand the big picture and all of those parts interaction with each other. And part of this is onboarding, as your example, Mike. Part of this is onboarding people, right? We have a new colleague, he's junior, okay. So you have the, the set, you don't have any experience in the industry. Let's pair program. Let's ensemble program. Let's let's go together to documentation. Let's do some, you know, design with pen and paper or whiteboard or some uh, digital tool that we use nowadays. And that I believe that is important. And this is what I try to instill when uh, even I'm coaching and mentoring people that want to, you know, have seniority. They don't want to go under the management track and they want to stay on, on let's say, the content part of engineering or development or uh, whatever discipline we have. And this is what I say. It's, it's important at that point to contribute to the ecosystem, to the social part. Uh, and then as it goes, you expect more people to be able to read weak signals, you know, uh, uh, if colleagues are going towards a burnout or, you know, if people have a, a bad time because their private life is not okay and this is where we need to, you know, okay, some teammate is not okay, perhaps so we can change projects around so we don't put too much pressure on that person, right? And that comes also with your experience and your uh, uh, seniority because also you get older. So you you start to have more experiences in your life that allow you to, to read these signals. So I think that that, that is um, for me one core trait or, or skill because it's learnable uh, in my opinion that uh, people that get this seniority uh, should have. Yeah, I love that actually because again, it, it's not all about you when you're going up that ladder, it is really important to be able to pass down that knowledge. Uh, and just for the listeners out there, like. Think about it from the perspective of the company. Imagine you're the senior engineer and you refuse to pass down your knowledge. How is that going to go down two, three years down the line when you leave or five years down the line when you leave? That code base is going to be unmanageable. So as a senior developer, I, I think it's very, very invaluable and very, very like critical to be able to, even if it's a one-on-one -on -one kind of session every once in a while, to be able to pass down that knowledge. So that's a critical skill that you learn. So if you don't like it, that's something that you need to kind of at least learn and be open to. So thanks. Thanks for that answer, Joe. Cool. And this actually transitions very nicely into our, into our next topic, which is, you know, in your opinion, how important is the technical skill of a team versus the soft skills that guide them like consultants or leaders of those teams is one more important than the other? I don't think so. Um, I think that both are important because also I'm so lots of ideas in my head. I'm trying to structure them. One of the things, and I read this from a former uh, uh, consultant from ThoughtWorks. One of the things that he wrote on a blog post a couple of months ago about successful consultancy companies like Pivotal or, or ThoughtWorks, and I agree, is that consultants on those companies 
are able to team and re-team very quickly, right? Because these people, people like me, you know, we go in, we spot the problem, we need to embrace social part and help to, to achieve some goal of the company, uh, either short-term or long-term. So this ability to understand uh, the, the dynamics of the social part is very important. So that's why we are so good, or we think that we are good, but we succeed, let's say like that, um, in teaming and re-teaming. Usually, if you are a person that prefers, you know, the, the permanent positions and, you know, uh, longer tenures in the companies, uh, product companies, you don't do teaming and re-teaming that often, especially if you are in a company that doesn't grow too much. However, I had experience in my life because I'm only consultant in the last three and a half years. Before these, I always work on product companies. I had experiences. I had two experiences. One in one company that the, the business wasn't go that great that some people need to be fired. So the teams were reshuffled. In another company, uh, I experimented the opposite. The, the teams was the company was growing so fast that we need to split teams. So we also, during our career, we experiment these reteaming uh, effect. Or, or, or uh, phenomena. And I think that this is where the social skills kicked in, right? Uh, be open and honest to our colleagues. Stay curious, right? Although I would like to work with you, Matt, and Mike, maybe now our team is split because our skills are needed in different teams. And that's okay. We're going to, you know, just go and stay curious towards my new colleagues and continue the journey because we are still on the same company. And saying that, there is an awesome book uh, by uh, a lady in US, Heidi, that she wrote about dynamic reteaming. So actually, she is an advocate and does dynamic reteaming in product companies. You know, every six months, allow people to move between teams, right? So this social aspect of a company comes stronger. Because we work with each other, and of course, uh, uh, in the technique on the way that uh, she does or proposed to do dynamic reteaming, it's to put missions to the team, what are the skills to the team, and you can say, you know, I'm a Python developer and uh, I like to do data science, and that team is doing cool stuff with data. I will like to work on that area of the business. So very, uh, in a very short, but this allows these interesting experience that people can have, you know, new, new people, uh, connect to new people, and in the end, have a healthier workplace. And uh, this was very refreshing also to me because I see these from one angle, from the consultancy point of view, I need to go in, go out, but also start seeing uh, in people that don't like consultancy and like the, the permanent jobs um, uh, to, to, also trying to do the, the, the same thing. It's very interesting. I like that constant reteaming idea, actually. I never even thought about that. I, I feel like it would um, really be good for code documentation, as funny as it is. Like, they must really focus on making making readable code and easily, you know, transferable knowledge, which is a big, big benefit for a larger company when you're talking, talking long term. 
Exactly. And that is what she writes in the book, right? Because then after a few of these cycles, people really care because they want to live a legacy. And when I'm talking about legacies, not the legacy in our heads, the unmaintainable system, <laughs> but some legacy that they know that they can leave the team and the next person can go have readable code, have tests, documentation, logging and monitoring, you know, that system is maintainable. In the end, also, these make us better developers, better engineers, because we know that I'm going to change teams, so I expect to find these. And because I have this expectation, I should behave in the same way towards the people that will fulfill my role on this team. So it it's really triggers the empathy that we should have as, uh, as human beings. What, what would you say in terms of, you know, because you, you, you were mentioning reteaming and people going in and out of teams, and Mike mentioned it as well. If somebody wants to say, say they're just a straight up web developer they're on a web development team, they're working as a web dev, and there's some sort of, there's some sort of say, more uh, human role, if you will, or whatever you'd call it, like a consultant or a leader of the team there, that leader leaves, they go, they get reteamed, it doesn't matter. Would you say that it makes sense then to promote someone from within the team from a technical role to the leadership position if they're if they're up for it or in this reteaming where you're sort of shuffling people is it better to say okay you want to take a leadership role you the web dev you go and lead the uh some other team like whatever it is the uh the devops team or something that's like semi-related but it's still kind of pushing their skills or should you be upgrading from the tech to the to the leader in the same type of team um, given the example that you are, are putting forward, I will say that it's safer for this person to stay with the same tech stack, right? Mm -hmm. Because we'll be more comfortable. Because moving from, you know, uh, engineering position and uh, development position towards, you know, being an HR manager and be responsible for appraisal cycles and have sometimes stuff, the, the conversations about performance, I will not try to change the whole world of that person, right? Second thing is, in the case that even that person says, okay, I did this all my life, but I want to go to DevOps area, I will make sure that there is a strong team of team leads around that person, right? Right. So you can balance also the seniority and, right? So the, the person is stepping in two different fields. One is the knowledge, itself and the, uh, the knowledge about the discipline itself and second one is taking this new role that uh, you know can be tough as well uh, so this is the the caveat that I, I will have and also with promotions I'm a big fan of doing internal promotions but doing promotions when you have a strong team of people that can support the new person that was just promoted Right. That makes a lot of sense. The team leads definitely can complement the actual leader or whatever the position is called in that particular company. And that makes a lot of sense. And it allows them to be allows them to do what they want in this particular instance. If they really want to try out DevOps, it kind of allows them to gain those human skills, but also lean on those those strong tech leads and those team leads. Exactly. Exactly. So um, it's an interesting 
I think that is an interesting mix. And uh, now putting my CTO goggles on, this is what I advocate to try to allow progression of people on their career, right? Mm. Trying new stuff, but at the same time, have some business continuity, right? Uh, uh, because in the end, there is a business to run. Uh, salaries needs to be paid, all of that type of stuff. So trying to balance those aspect, two aspects. But in the end, if people are happy, people will contribute to the goals of the company. No doubt about that. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of changing gears a little bit, but still kind of related to switching around, you know, t- talking more about your own career in this in, the, in this particular question. But, you know, you've done you've done more than just working at various positions in different companies. You know, you've also done some speaking at events and you even host your own podcast. So do you think, you know, in, in the spirit of mixing things up and, and reworking teams and stuff like that, do you think that it's important for those that are working in tech to try and do these different, if you will, extracurricular activities outside of the traditional office hours, or maybe do you just do this for fun or what do you think? I think that you should do this for fun. I don't believe I don't believe in this sort of movement that you know you are only a good professional if you do your office hours and then you contribute to 10 other open source projects and you go to meetups and you know in the end you are doing 80 hours uh, uh, a week of work related stuff. I do believe that you should do things out of passion. And in my career, I always do these out of fun, right? And especially now with a daughter, I try to put more boundaries and actually doing less, uh, but doing really things that give me energy. So I believe in trying different things, but I also believe that companies should provide you that by, you know, assigning, uh, you know, 10% or 20% of your time to do experiments with technology A, B, or C, or, you know, going to meetups and conferences and having your education budget. I do also think that is the companies should provide that, right? Even I know companies that, uh, you know, setting up their own podcast space and uh, starting a podcast. That is totally fine. Allows people to experiment different things. So, um I have this view of the world. Uh, lots of people don't agree with me, but hey, it's just an opinion. Absolutely, there's there's always the there's always the the push and pull, right? Like you said, you you have a daughter now, so you're trying to you're trying to set some new boundaries. And even even though even Mike and I, you know, we don't have kids, but even Mike and I will will. I think I mentioned on a previous episode, but as I get a little bit older, like I will. You know, I want to go to the family Thanksgiving dinner and I want to go to like the little family event that requires my full attention and, you know, being constantly, you know, called out to stuff or, you know, hey, I, I need this this header fixed or hey, my email's not working, stuff like that. It just sort of becomes this like, hey, you know what, like it's Saturday, I'm going to look at this on Monday and it's really hard to set down those boundaries. But you're right, you know, you need to do those activities that that really give you energy. You need to do those activities that will allow you personally to say, okay, you know, I'm going to work my, you know, my eight hours, but when I leave here, I'm going to go do something really fun and cool, whether it's playing a video game with a friend or doing that Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is. And then when I come back on Monday, I'm going to be that much more energized and actually be able to help you better. 
And it's always difficult to sort of have that push and pull, have fun at the same time. And and also with everyone, all these influencers, if you will, screaming in your ear saying, start up a side hustle, contribute to those open source. You know, it's a really big struggle. It is, right? The, the grass on the other side is always greener. And that also is a side effect of uh, social media, right? In the Without social media, you have that group of friends, right? You uh, Pre-COVID, we go to a bar, we go to a restaurant, we see lots of people, but we don't interact with lots of people, right? But with social media, looks like we have lots of friends. Looks like that everyone is doing lots of stuff. But was already like that in the past. We just didn't know. No one was always posting on Instagram what they were doing. And... Um, I close my social media, except Twitter and uh, LinkedIn, because of that fact. I was so, you know, flooded with all of those signals that was just too much. Literally, was too much. So just close the accounts. I have my friends. I do buy barbecues because I do like to do the barbecues. Uh, Pre-COVID, we travel a lot uh, because you know uh, the privilege of being a public speaker. You know. Just brought my family doing the, the city breaks and all of that stuff. And that's it. It's enough. You know, it's just enough. Uh, and um, I think that is one of the things that our generation and generation of my brother and younger generations needs to, to learn that um, slower is faster. Yeah, it's always like the, uh, I, don't, I don't remember where the quote came from, but slow is smooth and smooth is fast. It's like, you know, you just want to have a smooth a smooth go at it. You don't want to have, if you will, like the phone constantly going off or the Instagram always going off. And that like, that breaks the smoothness, you know, it breaks the smoothness every day where you're out in the backyard having a barbecue and then someone else is having some fantastic vacation. You look at it on Instagram and you're like, oh, what am I doing? You know, but in reality, if you were talking to that person after the fact, maybe they came to your barbecue and they're like, oh, I went to, you know, I went to Cuba or whatever. I went to Cuba and I had this great vacation. It wouldn't feel so weird. It's just, it's, it's because it, it, it's framed in such a way and it's delivered, like you said, in such a, in such a volume where you're not just seeing one friend on some crazy vacation. You're seeing 10 friends on some crazy vacation and someone else's just got promoted and this and that and this and that and this and that. And it just never ends. And so, yeah, I kind of, uh, as uh, Mike, to Mike's despair, I I rarely use Twitter. I'm start using it a little bit more just to sort of benefit the show and such. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat as you there. It's just uh, it's a lot. It's just a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. And um, well, another learning that I had. So uh, and uh, I think that I'm I'm better now with all of those signals. Yeah, it's. Uh, Definitely like putting the phone down or being forced to put the phone down. I've had to like I've gone on vacation where the Internet was you had to pay for it per hour and it would go down like every hour. So, uh, you know, you're forced really to not <laughs> to not use yeah. uh, to not use the Internet. But that was great. And then when I turned, I remember I bought an Internet card the one day and turned on my Internet and my phone went off like 40 times. And I was like, oh, here we go. Here comes the. <laughs> Here comes the lack of relaxation right back type of thing. So exactly. Yeah. yeah the big. Uh, yeah. It's hard to hard to hard to deal with all those signals. Big part of our lives now. Uh, but I want to touch actually back on your your software stuff. So I want to touch on your specifically your software delivery experience. This is sort of a loaded multi-part question. I'll read the whole thing out. We can kind of break it down after. But 
Um, you know, when designing, releasing, and upgrading or updating a piece of software, sometimes the developers can say miss the mark, if you will, with a given update, offering too little or too much in a given area, um, such as maybe they add too much complexity. So users are like, whoa, I don't know what that is. And they just ignore it. Or maybe that new feature that they added in the update is out of place. So they maybe they added it to a software without the users really needing it. And once again, it goes unused or it just bloats the software and, and annoys people, whatever. So with something like this, where, you know, you have that living, breathing product, like you mentioned before with software, here's a sort of the breakdown of the two or three questions. So how would you manage this sort of situation and, you know, choosing what what should be added and what should be removed in this type of instance? And also, you know, you use various heuristics and other similar constructs to drive um, conversations on your podcast. Do you use those same principles found in these design laws and those type of things in the heuristics to drive these type of decisions where you go, hey, you know, this kind of violates this law. Let's take a look. Yep. Okay. Let's cut that off. You know, how do you sort of deal with situations like this? Indeed. This is a big question. I will try to break it down. So I will start with the first law of consultancy. So it depends, right? Mm -hmm. So with that, I'm going to start one pack. All right. So software delivery and, and specifically the first part. So designing, releasing and updating we can miss the mark and by miss the mark can be like, we cause an outage. So uh, we thought that we update this part of the software in a distributed system and uh, uh, we didn't add the right level of testings or the right, right level of monitoring and uh, we break down things, which is okay if you have also the right level of automation because you can roll back, right? So for these type of things, I'm a big fan of, of modern engineering practices, if you, if you may, like feature flags and canary releasing and this type of stuff, dark launches, where you can put things in production and put just off with a feature flag or just have a small part of the traffic going there. So this is from an engineering point of view, right? Mm-hmm. The other part is very interesting because this starts to be more product management and data driven, right? I often found, and in my latest experience, the, the company, uh, one of the companies that I helped, they didn't add any data. So all the product features was added by the person that shout louder. This can be a this is okay in the beginning when you need to be very strong with the product vision, but as you scale up as a company going to the beginning, uh, that can be very dangerous because then, you know, that person shouts so louder that has everything done and people don't measure. So what I do in my, uh, in my consultancy practice is, okay, let's start measuring this. And how do we measure? Can be simple things like traffic. We have, let's say, 100 clicks uh, in all the features that we have in uh, the application, and this new uh, uh, this new feature only get two percent of the clicks. Right, so it's too you know it's too too complex or doesn't yield any business value. So we just delete that. Okay, 
if the company can hire more people, one of the things that I'm a biggest, uh, really a big fan is to have uh, user experience designers to do user panels, you know, to do some design experiences to collect this feedback. And then if the team is uh, quick enough to some experimentation, right? Put some features in productions to be, to see if they are used or not, right? Today we have enough tooling that allows to, to do this. When you are, and this is one part of it depends. The other part of the it depends is when you need to do things from a regulatory perspective. So I also help customers that are financial institutions and you just have regulatory items that you need to add to your application even if it is not used needs to be there one example i'm in europe gdpr all of the descriptions what you do with the data where the data is stored you need to have these features and also with financial products you need to have all the financial uh, information why do they use this instrument? What are the levels? You know, lots of pages and pages. So if you are a financial institution, you need to maintain all of that. People don't use that, but that is the cost of doing business. You just need to have that. So this is the, the other part. So being data-driven, it's very important, together with having proper engineering practices, automation, uh, observability, and even if you move to, towards an uh, 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 advanced one, even doing chaos engineering to see if you can withstand uh, some events, you know, uh, 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 lots of traffics because you just, some celebrity just tweet you on a, a Twitter and suddenly you become super famous with your service, right? So this is one of the things. With heuristics, that is a thing that I have a passion and uh, what my podcast goes around. Heuristics are very interesting to guide your design, right? So heuristics also are the rules of thumb. And the interesting things with heuristics, if the heuristics prove that they work in different contexts, they can become patterns. And patterns, we know that uh, they can be uh, applied in a consistent manner in different contexts, right? That heuristics help with design, right? Mm -hmm. So software design or software architecture, as we want to call it, I always call that is the game of trade-offs, right? Uh, so if you have the famous iron triangle, right? So you have three sides and you only can move two, right? And you cannot touch the, the third one. And that is how the forces go. This is where heuristics are important, right? Because... What do you value first, right? So there is one heuristic that start with the most valuable first, right? How do you define what is valuable? We can have a deep conversation about that uh, and go from there, right? Uh, uh, start with the user experience, you know? Uh, uh, APIs are like diamonds, are forever, you know? And there are bunch and bunch heuristics that can guide your design. And each person have those, right? Each one of us, we have these heuristics, and sometimes we don't even know. So I have a friend of mine that uh, uh, runs a workshop to discover your own heuristics, right? How many lines should have a, a function in code, right? Some people will say 10, another ones will say an Android, another ones, you know, and we can have this discussion and discover the heuristics 
that guide your design at the micro level or even at the macro level. We already touched this in the past, and that's why I think that is important for companies to have time for people to come together to discuss these type of things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of folks, uh, web developers, software engineers, you know, DevOps engineers, whatever, come together and just discuss their practices. How do they work? How they approach problems and map those heuristics, right? Because then we can learn with, with each other. Uh, years back, I was in a conference and the speaker said that a clever person learns from his or her own mistakes. A wise person learns from other people's mistakes, right? We can apply this to heuristics, right? Just your way of working, I can go, haha. So if you face this problem, you approach or design in a different way. And you can achieve the same outcome as I will do in a different way. And I think that this is very valuable. And in our industry, I feel that we don't discuss these topics enough. And that's why I started my podcast around heuristics, because I want to learn, you know, kick off the discussion. And we start with the heuristic and people share their experiences with regards with that heuristic, or even if they don't agree with that heuristic, that also is fine. And they do things in another way, because I do believe that this is important. So this was a very long answer. I hope that I touch uh, hold the areas, and I hope that the audience is not confused. I, I don't think the audience would be confused, actually. I think this is a very um, clear answer to me. Uh, I agree. I agree. Exactly. I think this is why we started our podcast, too, to see how others do their work, essentially, and to have that ability to bring on anyone of various experience to to kind of get into their mind. And I guess that's what heuristics is all about as well, is to to learn from each other and see what standards everyone kind of applies to. And I, I guess another question I would have as a follow-up to the heuristics is in a work setting, in a corporate environment, if everyone's discussing how they do things, can that ever have a negative impact um, on someone where maybe they do things the opposite way that the company would want them to do and they can kind of get flagged for that? It can. Mm-hmm. Uh and I will advise if that happened for the person to leave the, the company because the culture is not an open culture, right? Because one of the things is how the company wants to do things, but unless you are certified and, you know, this is like manufacturing or lean or, you know, you do software for pacemakers. This is a life or death situation, right? Mm-hmm. It's different. I never did software for life or death situations, okay? Just to be clear. So it's different, right? So I always work in companies that we could change our way of working with reasons and with boundaries, right? So if not just YOLO, you only live once and you do things, whatever, that is also not okay. But I do think that the discussion, even if we have different ideas, even in the how the companies, how the company did in the past is valuable. And the company should also stay curious, as I said in the beginning of uh, the episode, stay curious to change. Because if the company doesn't change, we'll just disappear, right? Because 
as we already saw in our uh, in our lifetime, companies that didn't adapt just died, right? Look to Kodak. Although Kodak was the first company inventing the digital machine for, to take photos, they didn't reinvent themselves and they, they, they died. And, and the same stuff happened with lots of small companies that didn't embrace the cloud, that didn't embrace automation and keep you know doing things on the old way. They were just too slow for demands on the market. And I talk with some people that you know uh, uh, were on these type of environments. They tried to change things, and companies didn't want to change, and they just left. And companies die. Um, so I will say that the cultural aspect, being a learning organization, is key. And this is what I look as professional. Is this organization a learning organization? Is an organization that takes the voices of people into account? Is able to say no, say, okay, you have a good idea. However, we have, uh, you know, challenge A, B, and C. And once again, communication, negotiation, but also a company that is able to say, okay, you have a good idea. We didn't thought about that. How can we do an experiment to try out this idea without, you know, putting our business, all our business down, right? And this is tricky. But I do believe that this is, should be the default way of organizations to operate. And I see more and more organizations trying to think like that because related to the beginning of the question with software delivery, if you have all the engineering practices in place, you can be really fast, which means that you have an advantage over the competition. You can really focus on measuring the product effect. You can really focus on measuring your funnels. You can really focus on measuring, you know, if people are buying your product or not, where the competition is just, you know, trying and and, and trying by luck, right? So the organizations that understand these, they yield uh, 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 an advantage and uh, I see that they are successful. So once again, a long answer <laughs> to a short question. Um, I, I really like the insight on this because, you know, it at a really high level, if you will, what I'm what I'm getting from really this whole whole chat is that you really need to consider the like the, the two elements that we've kind of covered, the the engineering element and then also the, the human element of everything. Because at the end of the day, the software or the digital product is made for humans. And also, you know, there's going to be technical people and non-technical people using it or even making it, depending on the, how the leadership of a company works. And so there there needs to be that sort of push and pull and that sort of tug of war, if you will, to sort of come to hopefully a good conclusion, or in this case, a good a good piece of software, a good path of updates for the software to make it better over time and actually useful. And sometimes, like you're saying, you need to have those experimentation periods and and demo periods, if you will. But at, you know, at the end of the day, it really does everything. Kind of comes down to the 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 two pieces, and not just you know the engineer that goes, "I'm not putting a button there." You know that's that's useless. Like they can they can just click these other four buttons and and achieve the same thing. But to to us, it'd be like, man, why am I clicking four buttons to upload an image to to Instagram? You know, you know, one two clicks and bang, it's it's up. But then, you know, an engineer might say like, well, that, you know, that, that's too much. That's too much work. That's too much work. So the human element has to kind of pull the engineer toward, hey, 
let's get a little bit of a better UX in there. And there'll be some push and pull and maybe it'll go down to two clicks instead of one, like the the human element, if you will, wants. But it's important to sort of have that push and pull. Definitely, definitely. And I think that we are circling back to the beginning of the episode, what we already talked about communication and negotiation. And I also can give you an example. So a few years back, I was talking with a person that was the chief architect for UPS, the logistical company for the European, Middle East and Africa region. And he told me a story that back in the day, he was in the innovation lab. And this was before UPS as those brown vans where the driver can directly go to the back of the van. And they only discovered that because they put the engineers with the drivers, you know, driving around, seeing how this person did their job. And the, engineer, and the drivers just said that we like to get really quickly from the, the you know, the, the driving wheel where he's driving to the back of the van in the most optimal way. And that is when these engineers, and they were not software engineers, but they are mechanical engineers, design those vans in those ways, you're right? So don't have passenger seat to allow the person to just get up walking around like the, the van is an office and get out, right? So redesigning the concept of the car. Drivers were happy and they were way more efficient on their, uh, uh, on their um, work, right? So, and this is really, really important. We do software for humans, humans to use in the end, right? So uh, uh, easy things, appealing, uh, appealing designs are really, really important uh, to be used. Last but not least, one of my favorite quotes. So I'm on the domain-driven design community. So uh, a folk in community, Alberto Brandolini, says a thing that is software development is a learning activity. Working code is a side effect. And I think that this is really, really deep to push us towards the social part of our jobs. Absolutely. Because it's no, it's, you know, at the end of the day, the, the customer really doesn't care whether it's PHP or Svelte or any, whatever, you know, Java, doesn't matter. They don't really care. The the code that's being written is a side effect of someone having a need. The door, you know, putting put into the in, – in, so you could quickly go in and out of the UPS truck from the driving into the cargo bay is, you know, because a human needed it. And so, like, it's just – that engineering is just a result. The door is just a result of of the need, if you will. And so, yeah, that absolutely, absolutely makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, it's very interesting to think on these terms and uh... – as I referred before, this was my learning journey from going the static view to a more dynamic and human view. Awesome. Well, I think what we'll do is, uh, you know, you've a lot of great insights in this episode. And, you know, I'll just kind of tie up this interview, if you will, with a, with a final sort of personal question. So on a more personal note, you know, I remember that, you know, you mentioned that in one of our, you mentioned in rather on one of our off air conversations that, you know, you really enjoyed podcasting and you were doing it as a hobby uh, for yourself, which you also kind of mentioned in one of the other questions, you know, what, 
But I'm I'm just curious on a personal note, why why did you land on podcasting? And and you know, I also have here what inspired your show's structure, which we already touched on. But you know, why why podcasting? Why did you think that that was the you know the thing to do? Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? What's the what's the deal there? Uh, great question, great question. So, as a kid, I always like radio, right? I try photography. I'm I'm not that good because I'm also partially colorblind. So I perceive the, the, the world in a different way. And as a kid in school, I also was part of the radio that we had in school. So I was connected to the sound. And I was always fascinated for people doing radio and then podcasts, right? When uh, the prices of the gear become accessible to the masses, mm-hmm. uh, how people did that. And then I start my career, put this idea on the shelf, you know, get the, the master on my skills. But then three years ago, I said, okay, I need to start always my, I need to start my podcasting. And then I, you know, start always delayed for A, B, and C. And then the pandemic hit. And as we already discussed, I have the privilege to, to speak in conferences, so I really like, you know, the, the speaker's dinner and the, the, the conversations with people on the always, right? These sharing experiences, right? Always amazing. And I lost that, right? I, I still did lots of uh, conferences, especially in the first nine months, but I didn't have that kick because I was just speaking to the camera. I made a joke and I don't know if the audience react or not. So I didn't have that. So I just started podcasting. I talked with my wife, okay, this is the time. Because I figured out that I had a similar feeling interviewing someone and discussing, you know, the ideas and why that person got to that solution and all of this type of stuff with podcasting, right? So it was very rewarding. Uh, Not saying that it's easy because uh, figuring out guests and preparing everything sometimes takes its energy, so uh, but that's fine. And for the last part of the question, what inspired my show structure, I always had a love for these patterns and heuristics. I always was always fascinated. And uh, I'm, I'm guided for one of the, the persons in our industry that captured lots of uh, uh, heuristics. So uh, Rebecca Wurzbrock, she wrote one book in the beginning of the 90s, Responsibility-Driven Development, I think that is development, RDD, that she just captured um, heuristics. And she was in pretty much all communities that you can imagine. She was in the Agile community in its inception to collect heuristics. She was with the folks of Small Talk, you know, uh, Martin Fowler, Kent Beck, where Agile started also capturing heuristics. She was with domain-driven design community. And today she is part of the the pattern language community. And I got also this love, how to capture heuristics, how to make questions. And then I thought, okay, I have this love. There are lots of heuristics. There are lots of patterns. Why not I start the show asking the guest challenge with one heuristic? Of course, I send the heuristic up front so the person uh, uh, thinks about this and also the source of the heuristic. And then I just have a free flow uh, discussion, literally free flow based on the answers of the person. I just keep asking questions. I think that my gift is being able to unpack conversations. 
And then in the end, because this is the, the, the structure, then in the end, I always ask the same question. What are the resources that this person recommends to the audience? And by resources, other podcasts or books or blog posts or videos, uh, stuff like that, that allows the, the audience to have extra resources if the, the, they want to go deeper on any topic that we discussed during the episode. So pretty much this is how I connected the, the theme or, or the, the drive of the, 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 the show with the structure itself and also my passion. I like to talk a lot. I don't know if you notice <laughs> during this hour, <laughs> uh, but um, I think that matches all of that. And that's, a, that's another example, actually. We've had a couple of people on the show uh, and then also in our personal lives, too, who, who took advantage of, you know, the situation that we were in with the lockdowns and the pandemic and all that and, you know, really turned it into a positive. In this case, you know, you, you got to try your, your passion and, and check out, you know, try try a new thing and, you know, ch- ask different opinions on her- heuristics and that type of things. And, you know, it's a it sounds like it's really worked out for you. So I'm glad that, uh, you know, you're basically able to turn a negative of the pandemic into a positive and, um, you know, tons of stories like that. So that's that's really great to hear. Yes, it is. This is the human at its best, right? When we are faced with these extreme conditions, we are able to reinvent ourselves. Absolutely. Very uh, versatile and um, adaptable, I guess you could say. (laughs) Exactly. Well, to uh, conclude the episode here, I'd just like to uh, thank you for coming on, Joao. And, uh, you know, the the floor is yours at this time, you know, Shameless self-plug, anything you want, your Twitter, your podcast, any projects you're working on, the company you're working at, whatever it is, please feel free. You have the floor now. Take it away. Well, thanks. So uh, I will self-marking myself so you can uh, follow my podcast, Software Crafts Podcast. So you can find uh, on Twitter, uh, internet, the page or LinkedIn. And uh, I live in two spaces. So... uh, joanrosa.io so without the tilde in my name so this is my website you can find more information talks trainings and uh, stuff that i do or you can uh, uh, drop me a line on twitter at joanrosa so you can find me there as well so uh, you know just drop me a line i like i actually like twitter avoid to go with rabbit holes but there are still interesting nuggets of information And by the way, thanks, Mike, and thanks, Matt, uh, for having me here. Absolutely. Thank you you very much for your, yeah, thank you very much for your insights. We never know how to conclude a podcast, eh, Mike? (laughs) No, it's good. I I like the awkward end. Yeah. Yeah. Got to have more thanks. Thank you. Uh, but uh, but yeah, thank you very much, Joao, for uh, for coming on, and uh, we you know glad to have you on back in back on in the future. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. This was a really pleasant experience. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as we did, but now it is time to close. So remember, if you really like this episode, 
We are on that Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript, Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design on localpathcomputing.com, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Selfmade Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, DL Ford from dlford.io, Bib Hashdash from 9Block Media on 9blockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via Geek GeekLifeRadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, and Jeff from Twitter via at TheRithic. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.